Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Opera Offstage. I'm Michelle. And I'm Jessie. And we're really excited to be continuing our Issues and Opera series covering young artist programs. Today we have some special guests. With us today we have Renee Namakao Ombaba and Cynthia Lopez Perez, both from Black Women in Opera and Latina Women in Opera, respectively, and we're super excited to have them. But before we jump in there, we have a couple of announcements. First of all, our shop is live on our website right now, which is very exciting for us. We've actually got an ebook up there, and Michelle, would you like to tell them a little more about it since this was your project? We released a 50 page ebook on social media for classical musicians, especially. I'm really, really excited about this ebook because I'm sure we've all seen those Instagram ads about becoming an influencer and boosting engagement and posting killer content. And then they give you no examples. Well, that is not the ebook that we made for you guys. Everything is super specific. We have post inspo talking about building a brand, talking about marketing, the ins and outs of Instagram stories, live, Facebook, pretty much everything that you would need to know as a beginner to intermediate social media person. So if you're looking to really boost your social media presence, which we all are because everything is digital now and our social media has essentially become our business card now more than ever. This ebook is for you. Now, the cool thing is our Patreon subscribers who are giving $7 or more actually get a free download of this PDF, which is really awesome. So you get it for cheaper along with a bunch of other really cool benefits. So if you want to get a good deal on that, consider joining our Patreon. If not, we have a little shop tab on our website that's live. So go ahead, share it with your friends. And uh, we want to see your spicy new social media. Absolutely. And you guys know the drill. Review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Spotify. Helps us out so much and we really, really appreciate it. Really helps other people find us and helps us find new audiences. Now, getting into the episode, we want to do our introduction for our two amazing guests. So first up is Renee. Renee Namakao Ombaba first got her bachelor's in vocal performance from Jackson State University in 2012. And then in 2014, she actually diversified her studies by earning her master's in Southern Studies from the University of Mississippi. As a performer in just this past 2019, she debuted as a soloist in The Messiah and also in Cezanne's Christmas Oratorio. She's also a performer with Washington Improv Theater, where she performs with the indie team Cute and Snobby. But what we're going to be really talking about today is in 2019, she launched Black Women in Opera to highlight the past and current achievements of Black women opera singers. If you're not already following it, I suggest you go and follow it. Awesome. And then I'm so excited to have my good friend, uh, Mexican-American soprano, Cynthia Lopez Perez, with us today. We both graduated from the Boston Conservatory together. We did a role together. She's absolutely wonderful. Cynthia holds a a master's in opera performance uh, from the Boston Conservatory, and she debuted on the stage as Susanna in La Noche de Figaro with Ohio State University Lyric and Opera Theater. She's also sung roles such as Despina, Blanche de la Force with the Boston Conservatory, and she is currently a digital artist in residence for Promenade Opera Project, where she will be singing the role of Leonora in Beethoven's Fidelio, along with various other ensemble performances. And she is the co-founder of the new platform Latina Women in Opera, a space dedicated to celebrating Latinas and Latinx people in opera. So on our first episode about YAPS, we talked a lot about the structural issues with YAPS and how that hurts us all on a professional level. But today we're going to talk a little bit more on a more personal level, how the way YAPS are affects us as artists or how professional programs affect us. So just to get us started off, Renee and Cynthia, can you tell me a little bit about in either a professional program or in a YAP, what have been some of like the highs and lows, do you feel like when your experiences, you've been appreciated or you feel like you're more being sold something? When I was younger, I'm 30 now, so I have done some musical theater programs during the summer that were kind of dedicated to professional development. In that setting, I felt, hmm, the high was that I was able to be on stage and have fun and learn new music. I was a person that they brought in because I was talented and it, they were like needing people. So I was in the ensemble and I had a chance to learn about dancing. So those were the highs. Those were the things I didn't have training in dancing or or in like really strict musical theater background. So 
that was like really fun. I liked the connections I made because after that I was able to be in another musical, which was separate outside of the program. I guess the low was just, it felt like, I mean, you're, I mean, you're basically kind of being exploited at, at the end of the day. If, if you just cut it down because you're not getting paid, we weren't getting paid for it. It was just kind of like the experience that you need to start your career off or whatever like that. And it, as valuable as that is, and the way it's always been as that is, it's a disservice to the people who cannot afford to have that opportunity to just work for free for the entire summer. So I know a lot of people who have quit music because they couldn't dedicate themselves or their summers or a lot of time to working for free because, I mean, after you graduate college, your student loans have already piled up and it's really time to get out on your own. So your career path might look different from people who can't afford to do that. I know one guy who was there, he was a principal and he was just like, yeah, this is like the third one he's done. And I mean, I think at least they gave him like a stipend and an apartment to live in. So that was like a big deal. But it's it's hard because I feel like we, we are often held hostage by our dreams because we love it so much. So it's just like there's things that have been done for other people who are older than us. So they feel like they should implement those practices, even though they weren't healthy. And then it's like you're having fun. You're actually living your dream because... If not for those opportunities, you wouldn't know a lot of the stuff that you needed to know, like the technical terms, the professionalism. So all those things are benefits, but I mean, at what cost? And I think that that's something that really needs to be reevaluated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything Renee said, you know, and in terms of commodity, some experiences that I have personally had were just, at least for me, I've had certain institutions or young artist programs well, not really young arts programs, but institutions specifically seek me out as a person of color for promotional purposes when it's actually not really reflective of the entire student body. And I I personally refuse to do those types of promotions because I think it's it's falsehood. And especially as I flash back to when I was younger and really trying to find places where I feel included. I do look at those promotional, I did, I did look at those promotional photos. So they have a really huge impact more than universities think, I think. And yeah, in terms of just accessibility financially, you know, in my experience, just coming from a lower socioeconomic status, I have to help my family with finances, you know, on top of my own individual finances. And as someone who has gained educational privilege and financial privilege, I also want to plan for my future. And as singers, sometimes that's really hard, you know, having that knowledge or just being able to plan for that because, you know, we don't always get those benefits in our jobs. So, yeah, I mean, apprenticeships that are paid like $200 for two months of work, it's just not feasible for some some people or pay to sings. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) You know, not only do you have to pay, but you're out of work for two months you know, for, for people who are providing for their family, for those diverse perspectives, because let me tell you, those are some of the di- most diverse perspectives I have come to know and love, not even in the music field, but in the restaurant industry where I, I am proud of having a history of. And though they're really important perspectives, you know, um, in terms of an asset, the, the way I've felt like an asset in young artist programs are just ongoing constructive feedback. When I did opera works, that was something that I loved. And (laughs) leaving opera works was kind of like a shock for me because I, for two weeks, I was just so nurtured and really felt cared about. And one of the things they also did, which believe it or not, (laughs) made me feel like an asset was learning my full name and my pronunciation and actually asking where the accent marks are when printing it out in a program. There have been pl- countless times where I'm in an audition and people say laugh when I say my name, specifically because I sometimes I say it too fast, apparently. And, you know, I say it in my ac- my Spanish accent because that's that's how I've grown up saying it. So so, yeah, it makes me feel very seen and heard. And that's something I felt in the Martina Arroyo program as well when I did that. But yeah, and programs that ask for feedback, love that. And, you know, another thing that makes you feel like an asset and, you know, again, just, you know, representation itself, 
believe it or not, makes me feel like an asset. The Martino Arroyo program, I mean, you know, it assisted in my development. It made me feel more included at being able to talk Spanish with so many Latinos. I mean, there were like six Latinos. There were, yeah, I believe like four black singers, uh, like five or six Asian singers. It was, it was just phenomenal seeing all this diversity. And also, you know, in the administration too, which was fascinating. And I think it really nurtured my development, my artistic development, especially seeing singers sing at that level was wonderful. Sorry, that was a really long spiel. No, <laughs> no, that's great. no, that's perfect. It. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah. And we will definitely get into to different points of things that you mentioned. <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that was, that was really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Just to kind of go a little bit deeper into this kind of treatment of young singers as a whole, this commodity versus asset, Jesse and I spoke about kind of the structural flaws, <laughs> a lot of structural flaws around young artist programs and different sorts of institutions and organizations. And I think one of the biggest things is this transition from really treating young artists, young singers as assets. So, you know, back in the golden days, houses and companies and directors and conductors would see singers through a big portion of their career and really take the time to invest in their art and in their voice. We don't really see that as much. We, of course, still see this with some houses and with some young artist program, but this is not really the norm. And going from treating our young artists from an asset to a commodity has basically just kind of turned a lot of young artists into sources of cheap labor, which is awful. And we see this especially with pay to sings. We see this with roles being given to young artists who will pay the $3,000, $5,000 to be there rather than the emerging professional who in their own right has earned it. You know what I mean? So it's it's pretty crazy. So for, for you, Renee, as well, are there any organizations like or parts of organizations that have made you feel more like an asset versus a commodity? I just did Premier Opera Vocal Arts Institute, and that that, that was an amazing experience. Like, First of all, Eric is very dedicated to like trying when it comes to diversity, like the effort is there and talking with his staff about just like Black Lives Matter after that during that this whole revolution. And he's like actively seeking out how can his organization work to make um, black artists feel in safe and included in like we are co-creators. So doing that experience was really, really great because it just taught me a lot about what it looks like when people actually try to care and it made it made me feel very hopeful I was very nervous coming in because it was like the first like professional thing I've done in a very long time so I was just like super super high on anxiety and then it's already you're going somewhere you love I love opera and it's not a lot of people that look like me that love opera that I'm seeing all the time every day so when you're going into a place where you know it's going to you're going to be the minority it's very nerve-wracking already, so you have to, like, put your mask on and just, like, put, fix yourself to be that person. And I feel like over time, I just really felt comfortable because the other Black women who were in the program with me, we were able to just, like, chat and, like, you know, talk about different things that we're going through, talk about the stuff that we found that, that was challenging, overcome some of our own personal issues. So I feel like that program definitely, for real, made me feel, like, really... Like, a, like an asset to, and just made, made me feel more confident in my talent. I think that was the purpose of that because it was more like lessons and stuff like that, developing yeah. personal talent versus like being in a, in a production or something like that. But it just made me feel much more confident. Like I got this, this is what I need to be learning. And he actually had black singers come in to teach, to teach master classes. And, and, you know, we, you know, it just felt, it just felt good to be in a place where people were actually trying. I think you've both brought up a great point, which is the importance, you know, as we're moving forward and we're talking about diversity and inclusion in opera, that it has to go beyond and so far beyond tokenism. This idea that you pull someone out for representation for photos because nobody wants to be the only person who looks like them in a, in a space either. You want other people there. It's about much 
a much larger sense of representation and a larger understanding of what it takes to actually make people feel comfortable and feel like they have space to breathe and grow and be vulnerable. And I think you've both I think you've both stated that in your own way in these programs. I think that's a great takeaway point. Definitely. Um, okay, so I know we said we were going to promo the stuff at the end, but I'm actually going to just promo you, Renee, right now, because as we're talking about, you know, these different organizations, you're literally putting on one, right? Um, so maybe here's a good place to stick it in. <laughs> yeah, so basically I had this crazy idea at the beginning of the year. I was talking to my friend because I was like, I wanted to do my whole issue with me singing and not singing because I graduated from college, did not feel confident, did not feel strong in my voice, even though, you know, I'm good. I can sing. I just did not feel that. So what I created when I was creating Black Women in Opera was just how do I make a program or make a platform that I needed when I was in college? Like, how do I show people that there are so many different types of voices so many different types of careers, so many different ways to love opera, so many different ways to dedicate yourself to the art. How do I make what I need it? So with Black Women in Opera, I'm just literally making what I need <laughs> to just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not easy to to love opera. Opera is not easy to love. Like, he does his own thing. Like, opera is not an easy lover. So <laughs> you have to really, really, really nurture yourself and be more confident. So... I was like, okay, how do I do this thing where I'm implementing those kind of ideas of being more confident and stronger in your voice and actually planning out what your career can look like and things like that. So we thought about the uh, the conference and I was like, okay, this is not going to work because the friend I was talking to is not like, you know, we are singers, so we like to be out there. He's not like an out there type of person. <laughs> so I decided let's do this Black Women in Opera conference. It's going to be a virtual conference and I'm going to do it. Okay. Who I don't know who that ambitious girl was. <laughs> but here we are now. So it's happening on October 3rd, uh, 2020. Open to everybody. Virtual conference. It's $25 to get a ticket. Flat fee. You get a digital booklet with ads and different um, articles about singing. You get to come and hear Angel Blue give a keynote address, which I'm super, super excited. Like, Oh, y'all don't understand. Oh my gosh. Stand. So cool. Oh yeah. my gosh. I, just, I did not. Amazing. That was a miracle, okay? A miracle. So you get to hear Angel Blue talk and you get to, get to hear Brianna Sinclair, which I'm super excited about. Just an up and coming opera singer. Like she sings down, okay? She's established, but you know, she just. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm excited about having those two women just talk about, talk about being an opera singer and just encouraging us because there are two people who I feel like. Everything they do on their platform is uplifting. I love how they uplift people. So you get to do that. We have sessions on Black community and opera. We have a session on young artist programs. We have a session on business owners in opera, like people who like have a business and they're trying to do opera career at the same time. Like, how do you make that work? Because you, like we said, we're trying to make money. We have a, a session on career planning. And then we have a session on education opportunities. So I'm talking to like opera singers who are doing opera education. Like, what does that look like? People who have their own schools and things like that. So it's going to be a really fun time. And the most exciting thing thing I'm most excited about (laughs) is that I'm going to have a portion where people can sing. I just want people to send me a song. You just got to be registered, registered for the thing. But you can just send me the song to sing. I'm going to edit them together and just make a little concert so people can, you know, know who you are and things like that. So I'm excited about, like, what that's going to look like and just, like, helping people be more confident in who they are and more confident in what they are giving to the world. Because what you're giving is you. And that's something I have to tell myself a lot, okay? <laughs> but I'm, yeah. ex- I'm really excited. So it's October 3rd, $25. Go to blackwomeninopera.com. And you can see all the information you need. Very simple. You can be a sponsor of the program. Place a digital ad. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great time. It's like <laughs> my friend was telling me that I'm the Issa Rae of opera. I'll accept that. I'll accept I'm the Issa, well, Issa D, like on Insecure. The Issa D version of opera. So it's going to be a great time. Yeah. I I remember when you first announced that you were going to be doing this Black Women in Opera Fest. And I was just immediately blown away because I can't even imagine just like, I mean, you're so dedicated and your platform has just like grown immensely. And it's, I feel like, I mean, you're definitely one of the people that 
I feel like everybody within our opera sphere on Instagram respects them immensely. So I was so excited to see that. And what an accomplishment. And especially to have like yeah. Angel Blue. Like, what the heck? Congratulations. I'm so excited for this event. <laughs> like, that's just awesome. But I mean, like, it really shows that the work that you're doing is so important. And you definitely, with your platform, and I'm sure with this festival, are really making people feel like an asset. You know what I mean? So that's, it's huge. That's what so many programs and these fests are missing. So it's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's seeking out the things we don't have and giving them to, not, not only giving them to ourselves, but giving them to the generation that'll come after us as singers and paving those inroads for people. I mean, that's, that's the best thing we can do for our industry is make it easier on the people and not, like you said earlier, not recreate those stupid cycles where it's like, well, I had to go through this, so so do you. Exactly. It's, Definitely. It's so much easier to help the next person. Like, it's just easier, y'all. Yeah. It's easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And our industry gets so much better if we do that. Yeah. Cynthia. Uh, oh, just because Renee said it's so much easier helping the next person just reminds me of Michelle Obama and her epic podcast. I don't know if any of you have been listening to it, but just, I mean, she just says the best things about like how individualism is, you know, killing society and just so many great topics about loving your neighbor and just helping each other. And I mean, Michelle Obama is like just inspiring person, but on what Michelle said, Renee, you just being like a leader for a lot of people and just a leader in opera. I mean, I just want to say, I mean, you know, I reached out to you before we made Latina Woman in Opera live because I didn't want you to see Latina Woman in Opera and be like, well, obviously, Black Woman in Opera, hello. Um, and, you know, you just gave me your full blessings. And I mean, you know, here to say Latina Woman in Opera was 100% inspired by Black Woman in Opera. And it, it has been such a beautiful ride for me and such like a, I have grown to really, really love caring for the next person, like you said. And it's, 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 I mean, it's growing to be one of my favorite passions and also something I'm currently looking to just become like a legal entity of some sort, but also to just delve deeper into DE and I work, um, diversity, inclusion, and equity work, because it's, it's very important. And you know what? People of color are the leaders of that. And we, we continue to be the, the changes that we see been because of people of color. So, so yeah. Just wanted to say that. Oh, yeah. I'm so proud of you, Cynthia. <laughs> like, you've grown a lot. You're so organized. I'd be like, okay, <laughs> let me get myself together. You be <laughs> together, okay? I love to see it. I love to see it. I love supporting you guys. Yay. What we're trying to say here is the women on the podcast today are, are fire starters in the best of ways. Yeah. Burning down the things that need to go and building up the fires to warm the people who come next. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well said. All right, Jesse. <laughs> And, and going back into our industry and the things that we are trying to address and the things that, you know, in this weird pause in our quarantine that we get to address, you know, one of the big things with YAPS in terms of especially, you know, we were talk you were saying earlier, the socioeconomic barriers, the not being able to take, you, you can't not work. Most of us can't not work and then also be giving all of our energy to something that doesn't pay us. And I don't think there's anything like the music industry in terms of, the education level we're expected to maintain while also doing free labor. You know, most internships, I feel like at the level that we reach in education are paid. And then on top of that, even to get into these programs, we pay. We pay to just apply and be rejected. So uh, honestly, on an ethical level, do you think that YAP should be charging application fees? I, I can go first and we can like kind of trade off the first thing. <laughs> so... I know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny when I tell my friends in other career fields that I have to pay an application fee to be interviewed for a job with sometimes a 1% or lower chance of getting hired, which only lowers if you're a soprano oh god <laughs> which is like all of us i'm pretty sure all of us are sopranos yes and then you know adding the element of being a woman of color you know it just goes lower and lower um, so that you know when i tell my friends that their jaws just fall to the ground and i don't know if any of you have had that experience 
with other friends. I'm pretty sure in no other job would that be acceptable. And I dare to say that they would probably consider it unethical. You know? Yeah. I mean, especially if the yep. person exemplifies yep. the necessary qualifications to be a candidate for interview or in our case, called for an audition. So that, you know, yeah, that's, that's definitely my thought. I mean, for paid things, especially like if you are already charging 3000 plus for the app, I mean, in some cases like 6,000 and I, I mean, I've, the numbers I've heard are just like, like I, I've gone to sites before and been like, oh, okay back (laughs) yeah and you know and they ask for an audition fee i mean consequentially there will be a lack of diversity i mean in socioeconomic status and consequentially race and ethnicity so yeah i I absolutely don't think that we should be charging that young artist program should be charging application fees yeah that's i agree totally not it does like the way you put it makes sense like you're paying to apply for a job Never thought of it that way, but yeah. that's what it is. You're paying to apply for a job. That make, that makes no sense. Like when I did Povai, that was I did Povai because it was a free app. It says no charge, so I said okay, I'm going to apply, and I got in. It should be that simple. Like I don't understand, but that's the exact thing. Yeah, it gives such an unfair advantage to people who simply have the resources to apply to more programs because sometimes it is just a numbers game. Yeah. And that's such a shame because we miss out on so many people because because of something that really shouldn't exist. And I guess the thing that blows my mind is that for all of that, you can't even get them to give you feedback. And as Michelle and I have talked about before, there are some that don't even tell you if you've been accepted or denied. They just never contact you again. You get ghosted. but You pay to get ghosted <laughs> by a professional program. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a total numbers game because there is this pressure to be constantly sending out applications every audition season. And I'm sure many people would agree that they've reached a point where they didn't send in an application because at the after applying to like five or six, you just don't have that extra $75, $80 to spend because you already know if you're going to get a callback. That's another $500 that you have to spend on a plane ticket. And you, of course, the Young Artist Program is not going to let you know that you have an audition until a week out. So those plane t- this is like my biggest pet peeve in history, are like so expensive, right? And so it's just, it's really unfortunate. And I think a lot of Young Artist Programs, I've been on a board for a very small Young Artist Program, and it was always kind of like, well, we need to... We need to pay somebody to look over the stuff. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need the money from these fees. And it's like, I think that there are ways to budget for that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I think that you can you can probably pull the money from somewhere. I don't know. I mean, even just like not having application fees and just helping pay for a pianist. You know what I mean? If you're using a pianist for like once you actually know if you have an audition could be a different topic. But application fees are tough. And they're excluding a lot of people all the time. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, the, have y'all seen I, Tanya, the movie? Yes. No. <laughs> the little girl has, like, the rabbit coat and the dad has to, like, shoot, ra- like, actual rabbits to get her the coat. It's like, it's like, that's the culture of opera. It's like, you have to look the part. You have to have the resources to even be included in something that should be for everyone. And I think it's it just boils down to how we think about music and how we think about musicians and just like how our society does not value that we don't we really don't value music so then that whole culture of devaluing music devalues the people who create it and then how do we make ways for ourselves when we don't there's just no value in what we're doing and it's really a shame that within the industry that that's supposed to value like such a traditional and sacred art that we are still reproducing those same value systems in a society that doesn't understand music. It's like, why would you want to create that in a space that's supposed to be for musicians? It doesn't make sense. Absolutely. You know, and it's on here too. But the other thing is, and I've heard this from multiple people because a lot of us will put up our recordings on YouTube. Some people realize that the yaps don't even necessarily listen to your video, which is once again why I think the feedback thing, if they're going to charge a fee, which I agree on a large level, I'd rather just see them go. But the feedback thing to me is important because at least then you know they actually watched it. Because I heard a bunch of people report zero views. They know that the person didn't even open the file. 
And that's a yeah. travesty. I mean, that's a scam at that point. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and even past that, I mean, I've gone through the whole live audition battle and sometimes they don't even let you know whether or not like their answer like they just ghost you they don't even send an email of like oh so sorry like we're not accepting you which is just preposterous to me so would you guys agree that there should probably be some sort of guaranteed response especially if they're charging a fee yeah I feel like it should be a guaranteed response because that's just professional like I don't understand yeah. like yeah not have a receptionist that does that i don't know like that should that's just should be standard <laughs> literal bare minimum yeah that's the bare minimum so. yeah i mean i completely agree um there there is this document that um well there's this classical singer facebook group but there is this document that goes around every year that actually talks about like whether when they get responses and stuff like that and yeah it's 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 so unprofessional oh yeah I mean, once again, even Michelle also brought up, you know, some of these programs really don't let you know until the last minute. And booking plane tickets, astronomically higher if you're close to that date than otherwise. I mean, it's just not even feasible for some people. Right. I think that the, this shutdown has really taught us to revalue our systems, like, because the community is so important and because they know now that they can't survive without us, I feel like to to an extent, like they really can't survive without people being interested or people coming or, pe- you know, like, like they need, exactly. they really need us. And they, I feel like they realized that, but it's like, so what are we going to do now that we know that it works in a way that they, they really need us. And it's like, and it has to be community based now because we can't go nowhere. It has to be dependent on making it accessible because we, because what I'm, I can't hire a person to come and get COVID at my house. I have to use the YouTube accompanist because it just makes sense now. So it has to be yeah. now that we're forced into this, like making it even more accessible for everyone. Like the video quality is not going to be on 1500 right now because I'm not paying nobody to come over here and get me sick or get themselves sick, whatever. So it's just like. Now that they know, now that we know that they can do it a different way, how are we going to force them to keep doing it the the different way? Absolutely. And I think this is like a huge moment. This, like I said, this awkward pause for classical musicians has actually in some ways been very good for us in that we have time to look at these systems and say, we can't stand for this. We simply can't return to this again because it's just unsustainable. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, how how do we actually hold these programs accountable and listening to all the recordings they receive. You guys have any thoughts on that? Because I feel like this is, I mean, we can complain about yaps and and call out their BS, but how do we actually hold people accountable to the things that we want to see change? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is a hard one (laughs) Um, for just especially, you know, how do you, it's like, how do you make sure someone does their job? Yeah. You know, like, does the bare minimum requirement of their job that I mean, that's incredibly tough. I mean, like the the inner work has to come from just who are you hiring to do these things? Like, are are they people who are loyal and, you know, will actually fulfill those requirements? I mean, like that it's it's. Yeah, it, it's a tough one. It's a tough one for me. I, I don't I don't think I have the answer, but you can always bother mm-hmm. them or embarrass them. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so true. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. And, like, I feel like it has to kind of happen from the inside. I think a lot of times in the opera industry, we are kind of beat. It's kind of beat into us. You don't want to break up, break any ties, you know, especially if you're young. You don't want to speak out too much because you don't want to break any ties. And it's, I think, especially now more than ever, starting to become noticed as something that has been incredibly toxic. And I have appreciated a lot, you know, podcasts like yours, operas, racist, and, you know, Black Women in Opera. I mean, y'all have been up and going for years, I mean. And I just... You know, I appreciate people being vocal, especially people using their privilege to be vocal. And, and yeah, I think it, it, it needs to come, kind of happen from the inside. If you notice that, you know, these institutions 
are not listening to these recordings, which I think is kind of unethical and unprofessional, speak up (laughs) because that's not okay. You know, the artists are not going to have a say and aren't going to know really if you do or not, because they also send those YouTube videos to like a thousand other companies. So it's got to come from the inside. That's all. Yeah, no, I agree. And I I think on that note, like we, while we as singers will do our best to try and hold them accountable, you're right. We kind of need more people on our side from the inside. And we need more people whistleblowing when things aren't working the way they should. We need more people who are comfortable, even if they come forward anonymously, like get into those Facebook groups, tell people what's going on. Like, don't let that cycle continue. And I have seen some people step forward and say, like, listen, from within this industry, I've noticed this person is not, you know, not invested in diversity and equity and inclusion, or they are, you know, actively hindering those processes. And I think it's more and more important that people who are already in positions of power, even if they're not at the top, start talking about it. Because we don't always know before we get into these rooms who we're walking into. Yeah, definitely. I think speaking out, I think is easier said than done because there is so much pressure to, you know, always be kind of that perfect singer, you know what I mean? Who like never speaks out a term or anything. And the directors always want to ask back. But I think it does tie a little bit back to really looking out for your neighbor and looking out for that next generation because not speaking out just means that maybe, you know, 20 other people also didn't get their recordings listened to or, you know, maybe 100 people who auditioned just never get that email to, at the bare minimum, just say, you know, thanks for auditioning, maybe like, you know, try again next year. And I think the more that we do kind of, as young artists, get more comfortable with calling out BS when we see it, like the more people will have to respond, you know what I mean? Because if you have a bunch of young artists just saying this isn't okay, at some point, they have to respond. But easier said than done. It's it scary is. regardless. It's a big risk because they be relying it on is. people being politically neutral. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I feel like I have never been in an industry just so politically behind. I'm just like, how, I mean, what are y'all even doing? <laughs> just so behind. True. But I think, I, I think it also is, is something to say that the risk should weigh more on people who are in positions of power, positions of privilege, in that even though there will always be risk, there's always a career risk when you take these on, but to be considered of the people who who can't necessarily even afford to take that risk, you know? Because even, yeah. uh, Cynthia, as you were saying, you know, when you know you're walking into a room as a, a woman of color, like, you know what your odds look like. And, and then on top of that, you know, we talked about it, the application fees add just another layer that increases the problems of getting into these things. And it's why so many people end up dropping out of this industry, because it's like, why play this numbers game that I can't even afford to play? Mm -hmm. And so we have the question on here that says, are application fees hindering diversity? I don't even know that we really need to ask it. I think it's so clear what it does. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, if you ask me, application fees, I I mean, I, I think they're just the tip of the iceberg of what is hindering diversity, if like I'm being completely honest. I mean, think how much you have to get to, to the point that you're even applying for those programs. There's 8,000 steps that come oh. before that, that are all very much based on <laughs> on who you know and what you can pay. It's it's really crazy because, I mean, operas that find, like doing artistry and like interpreting the work, it's such a fine, like the line is so fine. And people like, they cross it so much because it's like this right here, like, this is what, like, I, I remember being in a session, they were talking about just, like, how the woman feels. And this is like, okay, and she's, like, very sexual right now. And she just feels like this is, and it's like, the line is so, so little. Because you can just, you can get into sexual harassment real quick. Because you're trying to interpret the work and, like, relate it to the person that's doing it. I'm just like, you ain't got to say all that. We know what sex is. We know what she's talking about. <laughs> So it's just like the line is just so fine. And I feel like it translates into all areas when we were thinking about people who are marginalized in our society. It's just, it's so, it's so little. And I feel like we just, we have, like the opera industry has let people just do whatever and cross it because of 
they have yeah. 15 degrees in acting and they're the best person that knows about acting in opera but can't sing. And that's, you know, you both have brought up an important point too, which is it's not just on a representation level on with young artists or students. It's also on a teacher and administrator and all of these upper levels where we need those voices there. We don't just need them as students because that's not enough. We need we need it all through the ranks <laughs> because otherwise it doesn't work because then there's nobody on equal footing to speak up. And that equal footing is so important. I mean, how often do you feel like you see representation on those levels, on like the director, administrator, voice teacher level? Professionally? Yes. I mean, I was very blessed to have gone to a, a HBCU and now I have, I live in DC, which has a very big black opera community. So I'm very blessed. I'm very blessed in that. But like professionally, you hear it all the time. Never seen a black director. Well, yeah, we were talking in our, our main episode about this issue. You know, they were only just programming the first opera by a black composer for 2020, 2021 for um, Met Opera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yep. <laughs> crazy. I mean, that's insane. Mm-hmm. That's mind-blowingly stupid. <laughs> Which is an institution that prides itself on its history with African-American uh, performers. And it's it's very interesting how that how that plays out and what they choose to put on, what they choose to promote, how they use their artists to develop their bank accounts. <laughs> I'm trying to say it in a sweet way. <laughs> it, it's it's just like you can't hide you can't hide everything. Everything cannot be hidden by this blanket of I love black people because I got black people in my at my job that's not how it works you know yeah, it has yeah. to be like it has to be institutional yeah 100 percent. absolutely yeah I mean I, I at least recently I've been talking to a lot of administrators in higher education young artist programs and whatnot and a lot I've been talking about a lot of you know diversity equity and inclusion departments just you know because I've done a lot of work in that and I'm trying to find work in that plug please hire me (laughs) but one of the common things that I heard among these people in these higher positions who hire these departments you know are saying like we're trying to scramble to find the funds for funding this type of department and putting this at the forefront but you know we can't afford it but we are realizing and this is something that when one of the administrators said, I just stuck with me. What we are realizing is that we cannot afford not to have it. You know what I mean? They can't afford not to have it anymore. There is so much accountability going on right now, even to the extent that there is a document going around listing companies and institutions who have released Black Lives Matter statements whether they explicitly say Black Lives Matter, whether, you know, because some of them don't even say it, and what tangible solutions are they coming up with in order to promote diversity in their institutions? Because let me tell you, a lot of these opera companies and institutions are being faced with the fact that they only have one BIPOC in their entire faculty or administration or even artist roster. Yeah. You know, and it's now becoming, you know, as we know, this lack of diversity or this, you know, this race problem has been happening for centuries. And it's to the point that unless the livelihood of opera and its existence is at stake, they will not change and lean into that discomfort. And as we know, like, I mean, I've had this experience with um, my former organization, Voces Unidas, where we did concerts for charity events. And, you know, it's, it's you know, we put on a charity event for Venezuela, a charity event for Raices, which is a nonprofit organization that provides legal services for families, in particular, families of color, in particular, Black Latinx families, which are, you know, of the completely disproportionately being affected (laughs) at the border and we don't talk about that enough and it's you know we put on this concert and we saw that the church filled with latinos 
and we were singing opera, we were singing folk music, the vibe, I mean, everybody was singing with us. And, you know, let me tell you, that experience is something that I will always treasure and hold. I mean, and somebody else that's very well known, Lawrence Brownlee, in his cycle of my being, and I don't know if you've heard of that song cycle, but it's it's particularly about the experience of experiences, various varied experiences of African-American men in the United States. And he took that on tour. And one of the things he said that I always remember in the interview, because I'm so passionate by this stuff. And one of the things he said in the interview was just like, he went in a lot of lower SES areas. And because the experiences talked to a lot of black populations, guess what? The audience diversified. Not only people who don't usually listen to opera coming from all different types of SES status areas, it's just, you know, it's an experience that it should be a thing. I mean, the, I, I read somewhere before this uh, interview, the National Endowment Society wrote a statistic. I think it was a, a survey in 2013 or something. And they had data that, you know, opera goers were about 86% white. 86%. Yeah. You know, you, the U.S. Census, 2010, do the U.S. Census. It's coming up. I hope everybody has done it. But, you know, black people account for 15% of the population. Latinos, 18%. That's like 30-something percent. Imagine having that percent into the, the audience. Like, you know, that's how we save it. And, you know, there's one thing, and this will be my last bit, that one of the lyrics that I will always remember, and it really hits me hard, uh, from the cycle of my being that I wrote down before this, because I, I, I always share it with everybody. It says, America, I hear you hiss and stare. Do you love the air in me as I love the air in you? And like, that is a really hard line for me to hear because just of how divisive we are. And I mean, truly have always been, but also, and I hate to say this, but, and this is like, I put a lot of love into this for Latina women in opera, but just how divisive my own Latinx community can be by means of anti-blackness and color colorism just from our violent colonization you know and especially as like a brown mestiza woman with you know abundant indigenous roots understanding that like the movement should not center me and the same oppressions that suppress black human rights are the same things that are oppressing mine which is ultimately white supremacy and so that you know this is like sorry again a rant <laughs> But, but it's, you know, that, that is how we save opera. And, you know, unless those things, diversity is at the forefront and now we have a sense of accountability, like that, that's, that's, what's got to happen. Yeah, I know. I was reading an article in 1972. Yeah, it was. I was reading an article uh, about the same thing they said, same thing. They, everybody's like, this is 1972. So 40 some odd years ago, less than that, they were saying the exact same thing we're saying right now, that we have to have more diversity because that's how the audience is going to come. They're going to come to see Leontine Price or George Shirley or whoever was performing during that time period because they're invested in seeing something that looks like them, that they, they feel like they can buy into the art. They just, they just feel like a part of it. And it's like the, a very simple solution. A very simple solution is... Just be uncomfortable. You're going to be uncomfortable because you have been too comfortable for too long and your comfort is dependent on my oppression. And if you really are saying that this is what you're about, you're going to have to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be, it's not fun. It's not fun dealing with racism or sexism. That's not fun. <laughs> so it's not going to be fun for you to, to uncover all these systems of oppression and things that award you a lot of comfort and a lot of uh, mobility in the society. It's not going to be fun, but it has. It, the work has to be there, or opera will not survive. You know, like you, you said, Cynthia, opera will not survive. Yeah, I think you know, Cynthia. The you know, in a bizarre takeaway from your point about the audience, opera audiences are also largely made up of opera students. They're made up of young artists. The people who go see opera are also people who study classical music, and we are in an unprecedented position to make our demands, and we can't let that slip past. And if you're one of those. If you're a part, like I am, of the 86% of white people, doubly so. Get in their face. 
but you're right. Like it is, it is on the people who consume to to make demands, and it should come from the inside too. But you know what? It's whatever position we're in at this moment that we have to work from, and we can't keep waiting for things to change because time or because someone else is doing the work. And I'm so incredibly grateful for both of you who are willing to take the time to lay out these issues, to talk about them, to to lay out paths of ways forward. Because I know it's not a non-time, you know, it takes time and energy and effort and pain to go through these issues and lay them out again and again and again in hopes that people take them up and hear you and work with you. So uh, I'm just really grateful for both of you. Yeah, definitely. And and Cynthia, you know, you are one of three co-founders of Latina Women in Opera, which has once again just been met with so much great feedback and so much appreciation that this platform now exists. So, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Do you guys have any events coming up? What was kind of the inspiration to start that? Because, you know, we always say, yeah, we need more diversity, but you're actually going out and doing it, right? You are creating a platform and that's so honorable. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I met the other two girls, Maria Fernanda Brea, who's from Venezuela, and Linda Coyazo, from, uh, who's Ecuadorian, Puerto Rican. I met those two girls at the Martino Royal program. I, it, I mean, I just have so many. Martino Royal program was actually a very pivotal moment in just my active leadership, because when we met each other, it was during, you know, a lot of the issues that were happening with family separation were becoming very vocal on the news. Some of us were affected by it directly and feeling very emotional. Um, so we were truly all there for each other in that way. And it was just, you know, a wonderful experience. And we started a program, a little organization called Voces Unidas, like I said, and that kind of went on the side and it was a beautiful thing for our development. And now we have Latina Women in Opera, which, you know, started as an Instagram platform to really celebrate Latina and Latinx people in the opera industry, former and current Latina and Latinx in opera. Because, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many elements to opera, you know, there's admin staff, faculty, makeup artists, costume designers. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. So it's really just, it's not just about singers, you know, because as we all know, it takes a village. (laughs) But, you know, we go into racial and ethnic studies. One post that resonated was, but you don't look Latino. It was a graphic by Rice and Frijoles. And just like there is this stereotypical image that people have of Latinx thinking that it's like a racial makeup. (laughs) And I've been told like, Oh, well, you, when you go in a room, people are just going to know you're Latina. And it's like, you shouldn't make that assumption, first of all. <laughs> um, because, la, la, like we said, like Latinx is not a, it's an ethnic group. It's an ethnicity. So we also talk about how, you know, what what is more inclusive language during this time? Saying, you know, Latinx for Black lives does erase the fact that we have Black lives. <laughs> you know? So there's another phrase that has been going on, which we really love. Latinx también somos negros. Latinx, we are also Black. And, you know, we embrace the fact that there are Black lives in our community. We also acknowledge the fact that the Latinx community has a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. We also talk about um, finance education. Well, we will be talking about finance education. I'm still, like, drafting a lot right now because it takes a lot of work, as Renee knows. So there's one bit that I'm going to talk about, Hablemos de Dinero. And um, this is something I'm really passionate about just because I have had to learn all this information myself. Just the difference between Roth IRAs, traditional IRAs, how to calculate emergency savings funds. What is the difference between stocks and bonds? And we do this in the hopes of potentially having little sessions for BIPOC to help them sort of get started with these types of uh, foundational finance education points. We talk about audition tips, makeup for various skin tones, with an emphasis of black and brown skins. Because the representation is limited, we have a series called Botitas del Saber, Little Drops of Wisdom. I think that's how it's translated. (laughs) Translates weird. So it has interviews with Latinx performers and non-performers, which is like really crucial because uh, it exposes the art to people who would not think twice about it. I'm going to totally, I'm, I'm going to leak this here, but 
We have an interview with Marisol Leva, who is a uh, Afro-Latina trans model who just got covered in, uh, just got the September issue cover for Vogue Mexico. She's a model, doesn't really delve in opera, but but she does delve into the entertainment industry, which is also has a lack of representation. So I'm really excited to have her on. She has a book called My Sister, which I I love. I mean, I've cried like 30 times. <laughs> but uh, her sister is actually Selenis Leva, who is um, from Orange is the New Black. And I mean, the book is just beautiful. I definitely recommend it. Um, but that's somebody we'll have on the show. And yeah, just career tips and all that stuff. So essentially, I always say that, you know, our three goals are promotion, accessibility, and education. Uh, those are really, you know, the big three things that we try to focus on. As far as upcoming events go, we have the Voces Latinx series, which is a series that I'm kind of in control of. We have our first collaborative video release of Cielito Lindo, which is a traditional Mexican song. I'm sure you're familiar with it, Michelle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's coming September 17th. So it'll be on Thursday. We hope y'all will share it. Um, it's, I mean, I cannot wait till y'all see it because it's such a beautiful video and it kind of debunks this whole, oh, but you don't look Latina, you know, or you don't look Latinx. So I, I hope people will really enjoy it. And then we just announced our Facebook Live monthly concert series for our Latina and Latinx community. All the details are on our IG. So if any of your listeners are Latina and Lat or Latinx, please apply. And that is something that is led by the co-founder, Linda. And she, I mean, that's like her passion. So I'm confident that it's going to be very, very good. And then we have our upcoming makeup and skincare con Maria, which I think is going to be this Tuesday. So I think it's going to be on the release of his episode, but it's what it is. It'll still be on our IGTV. It's going to be with Nicole Bittling-Meyer, who's the founder of Moonlight Makeup Lounge. And uh, yeah, just she's, she's a visionary makeup artist and an entrepreneur and an opera singer and Latina. And she's just going to give all of the tips. And that is something that co-founder Maria does. And she's, you know, she's wonderful at makeup, but she also has like the most loving and compassionate heart and I've ever met. So yeah, that's what we got. <laughs> that's awesome. So many things to look forward to for both of your guys' events. So cool. Yeah, it's just, I'll never forget that when you sent me a DM, Cynthia, saying that you were going to be launching, I like literally screamed. I was so excited. I was like, this is just so needed. And I mean, obviously, you've seen it with the community that you guys have built so fast that, you know, yeah. we were looking for it. And it's it's really, really awesome to have that platform. And you guys are doing such a good job with it. It's awesome. Yeah. I'm. Thank you. Yeah. We just we had our happy hour yesterday and it was like for all of us, uh, you know, in the opera industry. And we had a 21 year old who's still an undergrad just, you know, express how much the community meant to her and just how just she sees a lack of representation just in her where she's at her university and just like having that space has been like a huge, like safe zone for her and to be able to provide that for people like her is just, it's, it's, it's really impactful. To me. Definitely. Did you want to say something, Jesse? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, hey, opera companies, if you're looking pe for people to consult and pay to consult on how to get your <laughs> opera companies more open and inclusive and in the correct way, we've got two lovely, lovely people here who have a lot of skill and time and energy put into that. So just saying. Just saying, because your girl needs a job. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. Well, you guys, thank you so much for taking the time to join us to chat with us. Like we said, we were we knew we wanted to do a follow up just about how, you know, the faulty structure of Yaps affects young artists as people. And we really appreciate you guys coming on to share your perspectives and your stories and your advice. So thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure. Oh. Such a pleasure. It's so nice to meet you. It's all. been so lovely. Yay. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And again, yeah, I mean, such a pleasure to meet you all. And I mean, especially you, Queen Renee. 
Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> oh, good times. No, awesome. I, I, I love all y'all. You're, you're all so inspiring and empowering to women everywhere. And I, and each of each and every one of you really. And I, I don't think you realize how much your impact with, to, you know, young singers and even singers, emerging professionals, professionals. I mean, yeah. Thank you for making your voices heard. Awesome. So thank you guys so much for coming and tuning in to part two of our issues in opera focusing on young artist programs. If you guys aren't already following us, you can find us at Opera Offstage on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or go check us out on our website, opera-offstage.com. And do not forget about our social media guide. Check us out on Patreon. Everything is linked on our website. We're so excited to see you guys again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.